in uh, the mid-20th century, there was a man named Dietrich Bonhoeffer. He was a German uh, pastor and theologian. And uh, he, during the Nazi regime, he started an underground uh, seminary, a secret seminary. And uh, at one point, his family came to visit him. And, you know, basically trying to talk him out of his crazy idea. So he had this underground seminary where he's training ministry uh, and past ministry leaders and pastors called Finkenwald. And uh, it was on the edge of this lake. And so when his family came, uh, they tried to basically talk him out of what he was doing. You know, this is a little too intense, a little too hardcore. Like, I think Jesus is okay if you tone it down, pull back a little bit. And so he, as the story goes, he took them out in a rowboat across this lake. And on the other side was a, a Nazi training camp on this lake. And he, so he rowed them out so where they could be in view of that camp, you know, not too close, uh, but in view. And then he said, pointing at the camp, or pointing at the, the underground seminary, he said, this has to be stronger than that. This community fellowship of discipleship has to be stronger than the influence of that. The reality is everybody has an agenda for your life. Hopefully that's not uh, a wake-up call to you or, you know, a spoiler to you. I think many of us are more and more aware of that, that everybody has an agenda for us, what to believe, how to think, what to do, how to act, what to post. You know, companies spend billions of dollars trying to influence us to buy things. Technology is designed to addict us, to keep doom-scrolling. Any other doom-scrollers in here? Or, or politicians certainly have an agenda for our life or different social groups or even our friends and family uh, and even the church. Like, we, we do have an agenda for your life. We want you to grow and conform to Christ-likeness. But worldwide, culture-wide, like, it's not even secret anymore. It's so blatant. There is a political scientist out of Harvard named Joseph Nye, and he coined the idea of hard power versus soft power when it came to, like, socio-political influence. And these, these, uh, this theory was actually used in both the Clinton, Clinton and Obama campaigns. But basically what it, what it is is hard power is influenced by force, right? You come in and pound somebody so that they believe the right things or do the right things. It's coercion by violence. Um, easy to spot. But the opposite is what he called soft power, which is arguably more effective because there's less resistance, because it's less obvious. And, but it is the ability to shape the preferences of others and the ability to attract. So the ability to shape the preferences of a, a people group you know, you think of, think of Hollywood as an obvious one where they changed how people, people's views on gender or sex or speech or, or freedom or consumerism through that. You know, where movies aren't just for your entertainment, they all have something they want you to believe, some sort of moral at the end or immoral at the end. And one 17th century Scottish writer, politician named Andrew Fletcher said, let me make the songs of a nation. I care not who makes its laws. Let me make the songs. He, he realized the impact that 
culture, through media, songs, you know, whatever, has more of an influence on us oftentimes than the actual laws that govern our state or nation. And I'm certainly not against culture. I think there's a lot in culture that we can celebrate and be a part of, and I'm not against marketing either. It's very helpful. I'm just, I'm just painting the picture of how we are influenced in our world that we live in right now. And I'm just saying, we need to at least be aware of it and the effect that it has on us. Because oftentimes we, we don't realize it. Or we may think, like, yeah, that's probably true, but I just don't want to think about it. And without realizing it, over time, slowly and slowly, we're influenced by and assimilate to those influences. Whether it's people's expectations for us or this... Uh, utopian vision of humanity or uh, views that are pushed on us by friends or social media and we're influenced by this kind of mob mentality that we see so often. So the, the question really is not if you are being influenced but who or what are you being influenced by? And to be aware of that. And I just want to ask, what's your plan to resist the 24-7 bombardment of people trying to influence you towards a certain end? Do you have a plan? Do you have any disciplines or rhythms to try to resist the effect that that has on you? The point is that we are all a product of our influences. And to have zero resistance to or um, a say in it at all is just to float down the river of culture or other people's expectations. But how do we anchor ourselves as followers of Jesus? How do we anchor ourselves from just becoming a product of our media consumption, political agendas, or other people's expectations? I'm glad you asked. Turn, you can turn to Mark chapter 1. We'll be starting in verse 35 as we continue our series, Discovering Jesus taking the question of who is this Jesus, the most influential person in history, asking that question against that backdrop of the first written account of his life. So starting in verse 35, Mark writes, very early in the morning, okay, already don't like where this is going, very early in the morning, while it was still dark, he, Jesus, got up, went out, and made his way to a deserted place, and there he was praying. Simon and his companions searched for him, and when they found him, they said, everyone is looking for you. Everyone is looking for you. Notice it's not just the larger culture that is influencing Jesus. Hey, everybody's looking for you. It's actually his disciples that come to him and try to influence him. Because everybody's probably asking them, like, hey, where is this rabbi that you follow? And they're putting all this pressure on him. But here it's actually his disciples that are trying to get him off track. Followers of Jesus that, you know, they're still a little green. They just started, but they're trying to get him off track. And so it's not just the culture out there, but even the culture in here where oftentimes, you know, God might be stirring something in your heart and the people that are most opposed to it are fellow Christians. Where maybe it's something that's not a moral issue. The Bible doesn't give you a black and white answer on something, but it's through, through wisdom, through a discernment that you're experiencing God calling you to something. And the advice is just this total mixed bag. But why did Mark want to mention this section about Jesus? Why not just keep on with all the miracles? Like, isn't that more exciting? But why he purposefully 
interjects this idea, this, this reality of Jesus going to a lonely place to pray. Why was that so important for Mark? That he wanted to highlight that. He could have just went from miracle to miracle without skipping a beat, but no, he goes from Jesus performing miracles at the house, then Jesus going to pray, and then back to miracles. Mark clearly wants to identify Jesus' prayer life, and hence his dependence on God the Father as a high priority in his life. Mark shows us not only the external activities of Jesus, but the internal activities of Jesus. The Christian life, according to this model of Jesus, is, is both, both working and retreating. It's letting our influence or our, our ministry be an overflow of this deep, rich, internal life with God. And if we don't hold up both, I think we miss out on what God is offering us. We'll, we'll burn out because we're just giving, giving, giving from an empty cup. Or maybe because we have the lack of prayer life, we end up giving to all the wrong things. Where we are just spent because we're doing something that God never really called us to do. We just cave to expectations. Or we'll altogether just miss the opportunity that God has these good works prepared for us, but yet we don't even walk in them. We just totally miss it. But Jesus was not too busy for prayer. Again, the most influential human in the history of the world. The busier he got, the more he prayed. The more he prayed. For most of, most of us, I mean, the busier we get, what's the first thing to go? Not a drive-by guilt thing here. I'm just saying, like, let's be honest. The first thing to go is usually our time with God, our prayer. It's just true. But for Jesus, the more people wanted him, the more he retreated to be with God. And he had this attractive freedom from everyone's expectations of him. You read this and you're just like, oh, I, I want to be like that. Like, have you ever met somebody in your life where they were just so at ease with themselves? You didn't get the sense that they needed anything from you or were trying to prove anything to you. They were just content. They were who they are. They're just at ease. They're free. Where they seem unwavering. They have this humble confidence of their identity and their call. Isn't that so simultaneously attractive and yet frustrating? Because they seem so free. And you're like, well, why can't I have that? Here I am, you know, people pleasing my life away, and this guy's like so free, just so in tune with what God had for him, so in line. But we get so busy worrying about the, the crowds. So-and-so is looking for you. They think you should do this. It would really please them if you did this. But like as, uh, as Paul says, if I was trying to please men, I wouldn't be a servant of Christ. Continuing in verse 38, Mark writes, And he, Jesus, said to them, Let's go on to the neighboring villages so that I may preach there too. This is why I have come. He's saying, I didn't just come to do miracles. He, he came to do, to do that as well. But it seems like more and more that's what people wanted from him. That's what people expected of him. You know, repent and believe stuff. That You know, we'll kind of throw that out the window, but... Jesus, we want you to heal. 
We want the miracles. But Jesus, after prayer with the Father, says, no, I, I know what I came here to do. Let's move on. Think about that. Moving on from a lot of uh, crowds of people that need physically tangible things. Jesus says, I know what I came here to do. He says, I have a message to preach there too. That is why I have come. They just wanted a healer, but Jesus came also as a preacher. The crowd came for miracles and they, they wanted this Jesus on their own terms. You know, a Jesus that kind of fits with their agenda or fits with their desires and their wishes. And as we're going through this series, we, we need to keep holding up the truth that we can't worship a Jesus on our own terms. Uh, a Jesus of our own imagination can't really help us or change us all that much. And Jesus isn't here to be a means to an end. He, he is the end. He is the goal. You know, oftentimes we, we come to Jesus and we miss the point when we, we want Jesus just to get blank. We use Jesus, we think following Jesus will help us get money or, or just healing, but we don't want anything to do with like counting the cost and denying ourselves, or we just even use Jesus to, to just get heaven. Like that's all that there is. We just want him as like an insurance policy for when we die. But in the meantime, you know, take them or leave them. But the Christian life is not about using Jesus, but about loving Jesus more than anything else in our life. If we love money more than Jesus, we will use Jesus as a means to get money. And what we see is he, he is so willing in this passage. And he'll go on to do another miracle right after this, but he is so in tune with God the Father and his will for him. In Luke's account, we get a little insight. It says, but the crowds were searching for him. They came to him and tried to keep him from leaving them. Imagine that. The crowds are begging him to stay. Maybe that's why he needed to pray, to stay aligned with God's will. When, imagine having crowds coming to you saying, stay, heal me. We have real needs. And to say, no, I came to do this. People had an agenda for his life. And, and honestly, a lot of it is genuine and probably sincere. I mean, I would have begged him too if I had some ailment that I needed a healing from. And I would have said, Jesus, don't leave. Stay here. Meet our needs. There's more people to heal. But many of them wanted physical help only, and he was here to offer spiritual help, to preach, to offer this, this coming kingdom to tell people to repent and believe. And for a lot of people, that's probably just not what they wanted to hear. And he isn't saying he won't do good deeds. He's just saying he hasn't come to only do those good deeds. He had done so many miracles the, the night before, and now everybody you know, wants a slice of that healing power, rightfully so. I mean, who of us wouldn't? But Jesus claims that he came to preach, not just do miracles. They just wanted one part of Jesus. And if we miss the retreating to prayer, we will end up doing a bunch of things that God has not called us to do. Has anybody else ever said yes to something that they knew they shouldn't and then they had to pay for it after? Awkward giggles. Yeah, you have. Me too. Yeah. 
But Jesus was so razor focused on the call and on the will that God had for him that he was, he, he was interruptible. Like, we'll see that. And he would care for those who come along the way, but he was so razor focused because of a deep life with God. He didn't lose sight of the work God had called him to do just because of the demands of everybody else. Because he had spent such a deep time with the Lord. John says, says this, or Jesus says this in John 6, For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Jesus was so in tune with the will of God in his life, not the expectations of everyone else. And so he does. He moves on. Verse 39, he went into all of Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and driving out demons. Then a man with leprosy came to him and on his knees begged him, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Moved with compassion, Jesus reached out his hand and touched him. I am willing, he told him, be made clean. Immediately, the leprosy left him, and he was made clean. Then he sternly warned him and sent him away at once, telling him, see that you say nothing to anyone, but go and show yourself to the priests and offer what Moses commanded for your cleansing as a testimony to them. Yet he went out and, and began to proclaim it widely and to spread the news with the result that Jesus could no longer enter a town openly but he was out in deserted places and they came to him from everywhere. So he, he goes to preach, but then a man comes up to him and asks for healing or, or in cleansing. I thought Jesus just said he was focused on preaching, but he was so moved with compassion for this leper. But Jesus' cleansing of the leper was not defied uh, it to actually totally defied cultural expectations. It wasn't that he gave in to people's expectations of him. It's actually just the opposite. He wasn't acting as a product of the culture. He was being countercultural in doing this. You did not heal a leper. You didn't come near a leper. Lepers had to be quarantined for life. You know, we thought we had it bad. Sorry to bring it up. Uh, but he, he, if you were a leper, you had to call out, unclean, unclean, whenever you came near an inhabited place. And not only were lepers supposed to stay away from others, others were supposed to stay away from lepers. And, and leprosy was a, just a word to, that described a variety of different skin diseases. But you were supposed to stay away from them, and they were supposed to stay away from you. One first century historian, Josephus, said, not a historian that focused on the first century, but an actual historian from the first century said, a leper was, quote, in no way differing from a corpse. In other words, they were good as dead. But not according to Jesus. Mark notes that Jesus was moved with compassion, that he reached out his hand and touched him. I am willing. Be made clean. What's interesting, or at least to me, couldn't he have just cleaned him from a distance? Couldn't he have just said the words from a distance? 
But Mark specifically notes that Jesus reached out his hand and touched him. This was defying cultural standards and expectations. You do not touch a leper. Why are you even letting this leper talk to you? Let alone then you actually touch him? This leper had probably not been had physical touch for years or decades. But Jesus was so moved with compassion that he not only healed him, he touched him. Moved with love from the depths of his being. He defied expectation knowing the will of God, and showed compassion. Verse 45 says, Yet he, he went out and proclaimed it widely, with the result that Jesus could no longer enter a town openly. So he, does, he, he cleanses this leper, tells the guy, Hey, just keep this between you and me, buddy. But, you know, he couldn't hold it in. I don't blame him. I'd be telling everybody too to the point where Jesus could no longer open, enter a town openly. So he went back out into the deserted place. But now people start coming to him out there. One commentator notes this. He says, ironically, Jesus and the leper have traded places. The leper is now on the inside with family and friends. Jesus is on the outside in a lonely and desolate place. This picture of substitution is the heart of the gospel. It is why Jesus came. He will take on himself. He, he will take on himself our sin, our sorrow, and our shame. In return, he gives us his forgiveness, his holiness, and his righteousness. Praise the Lord. What an exchange. Jesus came to meet both physical needs and spiritual needs, not just one. And, and we, many of us, we know Jesus because of the powerful external works of his life. But Mark does not want us to miss the point that these came out of a deep, internal, intimate life with God. Put another way, Jesus' rich exterior life stemmed from a deep interior life. And for us, to, in order to have a fruitful exterior life, isn't that, don't we all desire that? And, and to resist this constant influence of everyone else's agenda in our life, we have to have a deep, quiet, interior, rich life with God too. And you might say, well, I can't pray like Jesus. He got up early, went out in the dark. And I used, to, I used to think, I really used to think I was really bad at prayer. I thought I was really bad at prayer. But naturally, I love to go out into the woods and just to find a quiet place to sit and be. Like there was just something in me that desired that. I could do that for hours on end, but I couldn't pray very well. But it's part of the reason I, I love Montana so much and was drawn to just a place like this. It's, it's because you can get to these lonely places where nobody else is in sight. You can see the beauty of creation. And yet I thought I was so bad at prayer. Anybody see the disconnect? I was taught that that was not prayer. Being in a desolate, lonely place, enjoying God. I thought prayer was nothing more than, you know, sitting on a folding chair, 
preferably in like a dimly lit, you know, church basement, and uh, with some old coffee on the burner, working through a list of requests, of petitions. And to be fair, that is prayer. We have a team that does that, not in the church basement, but the church upstairs. That is prayer, but it's not the only kind of prayer. It's one kind. It's petition. But there are other kinds. Paul writes to his young protege pastor in 1 Timothy, First of all, then, I urge that petitions, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for everyone. Paul doesn't reduce prayer to one, one type, one narrow category. He lists four categories just in this passage. Petitions, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings. I wonder if many of us struggle with prayer because we've reduced it to one very specific form. And we don't know the contents of Jesus' prayer. We just know he went out to be by himself to a quiet, desolate, lonely place to be with God. Prayer is not just talking to God, but being with God. To realize we cannot give from an empty cup. Many of us, we're, we're trying to live and serve on fumes because we don't know how to be with God. You know, Daniel, in the book of Daniel, he prayed three times a day, as was, you know, the Jewish standard. And he resisted the food offered to him. And he, he did that to try to resist assimilating to that culture. He had these anchors of a life in prayer with God in the midst of this chaotic culture that was trying to turn him into something else. Paul writes in Romans, he says, Do not be conformed to this age, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may discern what is the good, pleasing, and perfect will of God. Do not be conformed to this age, but to be transformed to know the will of God. How do we do that? Are we being conformed by our culture or transformed more and more by life with God so that we actually know the will of God for us? And the Christian life is about that. It's about knowing God. Knowing God. What is even eternal life ultimately? Is it just a get-out-of-jail-free card? In John 17, it says, this is eternal life that they may know you, the only true God, and the one you have sent, Jesus Christ. This is eternal life, to know God, to know Christ, to not, not just to do stuff for him. Do you know him? Or, or are you too busy for him, too busy doing good things for him, but not spending time with him? Corey Tenboom wrote that, if the devil can't make you sin, he'll make you busy. There's a lot of truth in that. Jesus wasn't being lazy, certainly not. I mean, he got up super early, okay? But he, but he didn't quit going back to work, but his work was bracketed by time with God. Mark brackets this, this cleansing Jesus does by time in the desert. He's in the desert praying, 
He heals the leper. He goes back to the desert, and then the crowds end up coming to him. Jesus had plenty of ministry to do, plenty of good works to do. He was certainly more important than myself or any of you. No offense. I love you. I'm just saying. But he recognized the need to be with God. Even him. If the Son of God needs time to just be with God, how much more do we? How much more do we? But what does that look like? Like, what do we do with this? Are you saying, I got to go to the desert, take a flight to Arizona every time, you know, after I do a miracle or something? Sounds nice, especially right now. But how does this flesh out in our everyday life with jobs, kids, church responsibilities? Like, yeah, okay, pastor, you can do it. We pray you to, or we pay you to pray, you know? Easy for you to say. How do we live this out? You know, for this month, not even this week, but just for this month, I just want to invite us as a church, as individuals, to carve out time for solitude and prayer with God. Maybe this can be in your home. Maybe you don't have three crazy little kids like me. Um, So maybe this can be in your home. Maybe you find a warm day and you go on a walk or a hike or go sit by the river. Just somewhere where you won't be interrupted. Somewhere away from technology where you can turn your phone off and just be with God. No agenda other than that. Not trying to get through a book of the Bible even or like do any certain steps, but just to be. Don't um, romanticize it. You know, it sounds, sounds nice right now, right? Uh, yeah, when you do it, your mind's going to run like crazy. You're going to be like, oh, I forgot to pay that bill. Uh, I got this to-do list. I've got, oh, I've got all these phone calls i got to make. That's going to happen. That's normal. But to just let our mind come back to God. Let those things that are in our brain come out. Because many of us, we're really good at doing. We're really good at doing But we need to learn to be content just being with God. Being with God. Enjoying the presence of God. When's the last time that's happened in your life where you've just, God, I'm not even trying to do anything for you right now. I'm just enjoying you. Enjoying you and trusting that you, you enjoy me. And focusing ourselves on God. That's what, that's what abiding is. That's what all these things we do, that, that's what this is for. It's to set our affections on God, to enjoy him, to set our attention towards him with, with all the craziness of our lives. To, to push back on that just for a moment and to enjoy God, to calm ourselves, to experience the beauty of God. Again, maybe for you, it's you need to get out somewhere, go for a hike, See the beauty of what he has created and just experience that. You know, oftentimes we can go days, months, or decades keeping ourselves so busy that we never actually stop to to settle our minds and just enjoy him. You know, maybe for you it's it's probably going to take 10 minutes for your mind to even like get through all the to-do lists and bills and whatever. So maybe 20 minutes. 
for you. Or maybe half an hour, maybe, maybe a couple hours. It's up to you, but to look out your, uh, at your calendar and carve out some time and protect it. And to not ex- expect bliss or romanticizing it, but to realize it's not about results. It's about en- learning to enjoy the presence of God, to be with him, to listen, to commune, to cultivate a life of knowing him, not just doing stuff for him. But in, in the midst of all the work we do in life, family, ministry, church, to take times to just be with him. A.B. Simpson, the founder of our whole denomination, has this quote, and I love this about this type of prayer. He says, quote, it is often voiceless. It is communion. It does not ask for anything, but it just pours out its being in holy fellowship and silent communion with God. Silent communion with God. Maybe you're not so bad at prayer as you thought. Maybe you need to expand your horizons of what prayer is. Another pastor, Pete Scazzaro, said this. He said, we come to God in prayer not to get something from him, such as a word of encouragement or guidance, but simply to be with him. Being silent in God's presence is prayer. It is prayer. Or as the psalmist famously penned, to be still and know that I am God. That verse is in the context of wars and nations raging against one another. There's lots to do, okay? Lots to do. Seems pretty important to do those things, but yet to be still for a moment, just to stop fighting and know that he is God. So that's the invitation to carve out in the next week, next month, just to be. And it is an invitation not a coercion or a command from anybody here. I'm not going to check up on you during it. You know, like, hey, Rose, you know, you've been at work a lot today. Are you going to carve out some time or what? But it's an invitation. Not of me, but of the life of, of Jesus to engage and to get back to just being with God, enjoying God. Christianity is not just about doing stuff for God. It is that. There's lots of work to do. Jesus did go back to work. But it's about being with him. You know, I love, this is going to sound weird, I love when Taylor does stuff for me, you know. Uh, gets coffee ready for us in the morning, you know, that just starts the day off right. And uh, I like acts of service, I do. But even more so, I love quality time. Shared recreation, even, for us. I've taken Taylor on plenty of adventures that were a little too hardcore. Uh, you know, there was this one time we were camping in the snow on an elk hunt at nearly 10,000 feet. Yeah, you know, I talked her into that one. That's, that's just a couple miles. Forgot to mention, that, well, it's gaining 2,000 feet in those couple miles. You know, she's got camp on her back and preg- uh, pregnant with Grayson in her womb. Uh, yeah, I'm slowly learning. Maybe not the best idea. She said he kept her warm, though, so there's that. Uh, but still, it's one of my favorite memories with her. Because it wasn't just her serving me or doing something for me. It was us getting away in the solitude just to be together. 
just to enjoy one another. And while there is plenty of work to do for, uh, for you as individuals, for us as a church, I mean, how many people are moving to this area? Like, there's tons of ministry to do. But it cannot quench out our, the time to just be with God, to enjoy him and to believe that he, in fact, is actually through Christ enjoying you to anchor ourselves with him and what he has done for us. He didn't just save you so you can do a bunch of stuff for him, but so you could be with him. Enjoy him. So you could love and enjoy him because he loves and enjoys you. If we are going to stand a chance in this life as a follower of Jesus, we have to work from a rich, quiet life with God. And, And the fruit of our lives... And the influence to others has to simply be this overflow of a deep communion, maybe silent communion with God the Father. Otherwise, we will just become succumb to the influence of everybody else's agenda for our lives, this, this soft power for us, and we will miss the beautiful adventure of the life God has for us with him. So if we are going to have a chance in this life, This has to be stronger than that. Would you pray with me as we close? Father, as we draw to a close today, God, I pray that we could learn to just enjoy you, to to be content being with you, not just to try to do stuff for you, God, would you stir our hearts and affections so that we could focus them on you as we go out this week with all the things we have to do, the work and the family and the to-do list and the errands, that even in the midst of that busyness, we would find pockets of time to stop, to pause, to quiet our hearts and to look at you and to believe that you are looking back at us in joy. We pray all these things in your name. Amen.